0: Anybody else feeling busy this time of year, or is it just me, right? There's something about this season, right, where uh, there's so much going on, right? We've got Christmas parties to go to, Christmas activities to attend, there's decorating the house, making sure everything looks just right, and going out and finding all the right presents, and just doing all these different things on top of our normal schedules that we have already. There is a busyness to the season. And Yet in that busyness, one of the things that we've done as a church family to kind of combat that just a little bit is we've written and we've distributed devotionals. Where we just kind of go through each day, it reminds us just to pause each and every day and to remember the reason for the season and celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ, to worship. And so I hope you're going through those, I've, I, you know, they're, they're fantastic, those of you who've written and, and, uh, and, uh, and been a part of it this year, really is an exciting time, but you know, we're not the only ones who struggle with busyness and missing what should be so apparent, Uh, you go all the way back to the first Christmas time in that season, and you can see the same thing. We're we're continuing our series this morning titled, For All People. And one of the things that we've done is we've just kind of looked at the different people who Jesus has invited close. And we began in his family tree and just looked like he's not ashamed of anybody in his lineage He's got people who we've long since forgotten about and others who maybe we'd like to forget about, but it makes no difference to Jesus. He brings them close. He had not forgotten about any of them. Last week, we looked at the shepherds. These were the dirty ones. They were the ones excluded from temple worship, and yet Jesus brings them close. And this week, we'll look at the wise men, the magi from the east who come from this distant land to come close and to worship Jesus. It's exciting. Let's check it out together. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Matthew writes, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So, wise men, magi from the east, from a long ways away, they will come and they will worship Jesus. And we wonder, well, why, why would they come? You know, he's the king of the Jews. He doesn't seem to be their king. They're distant, right? They're from a far-off region. They're distant by nation. They're distant by custom. They're distant by ethnicity. They're distant by religion. They're distant by almost any way imaginable. They're from far off, and yet they're going to make this trek of over 900 miles to worship the one they say is born king of the Jews. He doesn't even seem to be their king, at least at first. And so they, they come. Now, to fully appreciate this story, one of the things you need to understand is uh, Matthew's gospel and who he intended his audience to be. Of the four gospel writers, Matthew, his primary audience was a Jewish audience. Okay? And so in Matthew's gospel, he's going to spend a lot of time referring to Old Testament prophecies, trying to prove to the Jews that Jesus really is the long awaited Messiah, that he's the rightful heir to the Davidic throne, that here he is, he's the Savior that we've been waiting for. And so he presents Jesus in this way to get the Jews to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ so they would rightly recognize him as Messiah. Now, when we read this section, you know, we like the wise men. You know, I mean, there's something about the wise men that's intriguing, maybe mysterious. You know, there's, a, there's some excitement kind of tied in with them. Because we can picture them, can't we? We can imagine them, that here these guys come tall and stately with these long robes and just bedazzled with different jewels. They probably have these gold crowns they're wearing. And, you know, they're, they're riding on camels. And the camels just kind of sway their heads back and forth with the beat of the music. I mean we can picture this and we like it. Uh, we, we can almost imagine ourselves as wise men. A lot of people have said, well if you had to be a character in the Christmas nativity scene, which would you be? Which would you pick? And a lot of us would pick the wise men. Because they are mysterious. They are exciting. There is something about them that kind of draws us in. But that's us, Gentiles. You know, Jews wouldn't have the same response. They're reading about Gentile wise men, and they're what's a Gentile going to teach me? You know, that's their thinking. And so the question comes, Matthew, why are you including the story of the wise men? Wouldn't this better fit in Luke's gospel as he explains the Christmas story? Why Matthew's? Hang on to that question, okay? Just kind of hang on to that one. Um, but when we talk about the Magi, you know, we don't really know a lot about them. The word magi means magician. Uh, They come from the east. Uh, Many people think Persia, ancient Babylon. Some have suggested China, but it is probably most likely Persia. Uh, The term magi does mean magician, but when you think of magician, don't think of like David Copperfield or Harry Houdini or some, someone like this is doing all these like crazy tricks. That, that, that's not the way magicians were thought of back then. These were leading figures in society. They were used in training future kings. Uh, they were astrologers. They, they studied the night sky. Uh, they were very religious. Um, many people have kind of wondered and speculated how these Persian... Magi even would have known to look for a star and to follow it and to see where Jesus uh, was. Well, uh, some have speculated that maybe they were a little bit familiar with the Hebrew scriptures and they knew the prophecies. And the reason for that is uh, because of the Babylonian exile, when Jews were taken into captivity into Babylon. And the Bible tells us in Daniel chapter 2 that Daniel was put in charge over The Magi, the wise men. So perhaps Daniel explained to those wise men, uh, here are the prophecies. And 600 years later, those prophecies, those scriptures had been passed down. And so the Magi in ancient Babylon were still looking for the star, still holding on to everything that Daniel had taught them. Perhaps. We don't really know. That's the thing. We don't really know. What we do know is the Magi would make an over 900-mile trek to Israel, to Jerusalem at first. Now, despite the old Christmas carol, we three kings of Orient are, uh, we really don't know how many there were, okay? There, there may have been three. You know, in Western tradition, we tend to say three primarily because there were three gifts. Three gifts, three wise men, make sense to us, we go with that. Now, if we were celebrating in the eastern part of the world today, uh, we'd probably be saying 12. Okay, if that's what's taught in the eastern part of the world in churches over there. Then the speculation there is there were 12 wise men. Now, whether there were 3 or 12 doesn't really matter, or some other number. We, we don't really know. That's the point. We don't really know. Um, the fact of the matter is, though, however many they were, they probably did not come alone. Okay, understand, people of that rank in society, they rarely traveled long distances alone. So these magi, they would have come with a caravan, probably cooks, guards, attendants, people like this. It would have been a caravan, not just three people, not just 12 people. You're probably talking at least more like 20 people in this caravan. And you can imagine the scene that that would cause, right? Here you see 20 people rolling up into, into Israel, into Jerusalem, and well, they look funny. They talk funny. Everything about them is kind of funny, a little different. It was probably causing quite a stir when this caravan showed up. And they showed up because they'd followed a star. Now, the star raises its own questions for us. Okay, what was this star? Was it huge and bright and just, oh man, so the magi had to take notice of it? Well, probably not. If the star was so big and so bright, like sometimes we conceive it and just kind of way down low in the sky, well, everybody would have taken notice of it, right? Everybody would have been joining in this caravan because they all would have wanted to see. Not necessarily what the star promised, but simply the star itself, you understand. No, more likely is the fact that these guys, they're studying the night sky. This was what they did. This was part of who they were, constantly studying and observing the sky, And then all of a sudden, they noticed the star that hung with all the other stars, but they knew it was special because of their studies. They recognized something about it. That's most likely. But the thing is, we don't really know. All we know is they follow the star. It's strange, isn't it, that wise men would follow the star, that they would hear the message and that they would come. It's strange, isn't it, that the religious leaders of the day, they don't hear... The message, they don't come. Strange, isn't it, that the message to the wise men didn't come through a prophet, not even an angel, came through a star. You know, I tell you all the time, good news just has to get out, right? We We just can't keep it to ourselves. And so the good news would come to the shepherds on a hillside through angels. The good news would come to the wise men through a star. All creation testifies that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so they come, and they come to worship the one who's born king. You understand Jesus is good news for the distant. He's good news for those who are far off. Good news for those who are distant by practice, who are distant by custom, distant by religion, distant by whatever means possible. Jesus is good news for the distant. He invites everyone close. And so the wise men, they follow the star, and they come close, expecting to find the baby king in Jerusalem. Instead, they meet Herod, okay? And here's grizzled old Herod, and they know right away, this is not the king they were coming to worship. See, you need to know a couple things about Herod. Herod wasn't Jewish, okay? He was an Idumean. Herod was not born king of the Jews. Herod was installed king of the Jews by the Roman Caesar, okay? So here he is. He's the one put, given this authority as king. And he was given that authority because, well, he taxed Israel heavily. Rome liked that. They liked the taxes. They liked all the income. But another thing Herod Herod did is he allowed the Jews to continue to run the temple and gave them leadership positions uh, that they wanted. So they had power too. Did Jerusalem like Herod? No, but they learned to live with Herod. He had given them certain power, and they appreciated that. Herod He was Jewish. He claimed by religion, but really by practice, he was a crazy man. Okay, he was sick. He was delusional. He was messed up in the head. All right. I mean, I give you a few stories about Herod. Okay. One of the things is he had a nephew. He installed his nephew as a chief priest. People liked his nephew. His nephew was good looking. He was friendly. He was he was good with the people. And one day there was a ceremony, and Herod introduced his nephew, uh, and people they applauded more for his nephew than they did for him. That's a bad career move, okay? And so Herod, he gets upset, and he invites his nephew over for a pool party. And here's, you know, uncle and nephew just roughhousing in a pool, and what do you know, the uncle just holds the nephew's son under the pool a little bit too long, and he drowns. All right? That's just one story. Herod thought that his wife had eyes for the crown, so he had her killed. Several of Herod's sons, he had them killed. The Roman Caesar Augustus said, It is better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Herod, he was so concerned that when he died that nobody would mourn, he issued an edict that said all the noblemen in Jerusalem need to be killed on the day that he died, so that there would be mourning in Jerusalem. The edict was not followed, the nobleman lived, and when he died, everybody celebrated, okay? His worst fears came to pass, nobody was mourning, everybody was celebrating. But you get the idea of how tightly Herod wanted to hold on to his throne, don't you? How much he wanted that power, how much he wanted everybody's respect, everybody looking to him. And here the magi, they show up. And they say, we have come to worship the one born king. What are they saying? You're not him. We've come to worship the right king of Israel, and we understand you're not the one. Can you imagine what that's doing to Herod on the inside? Right? I mean, he's killed people for this. Right? He's upset. He's, he's mad. And it's not just him who's mad. The Bible says Herod's upset, and all Jerusalem is upset. Why? Because Jerusalem backed Herod. It's not that Jerusalem liked Rome, but they learned to live with Rome. It's not that Jerusalem liked Herod. They had just learned to live with Herod. They had a degree of power now. They knew how things worked now. In a new king, a new administration, would it be the same? Would they have the same power the same authority, or would things look different? Would he claim more? And so that's what's going through their head. It's not just Herod who's upset. All Jerusalem, all Jerusalem is upset at the prospect of a new king, a new administration. You know, there's this philosophy. It's called humanism, secular humanism. And basically what it states is, hey, you're on the throne of your own life. And so you live life based on what feels good to you, on what you want, on what you think is best, how you think life ought to go. And hey, you can be whoever you want to be. You know, you just go out and make it happen. And you can find all kinds of books. You go to any library, you can find all kinds of books about this, telling you how you can do whatever it is you want to do podcasts there are plenty you can find all kinds of podcasts and it all has to do with secular humanism where essentially you're on the throne of your own life you see we read the story this scene of the wise men and a lot of times we can find ourselves in the wise men and we can picture ourselves as the wise men and we can think it's exciting intriguing mysterious My fear is, though, that sometimes we can act and live more like Herod, more like Jerusalem, because we're on our own throne, and we like our throne. We like to live life based on what we think is best. We like the power. We want to make decisions according to what's best for us, and so sometimes we have this fear that Jesus is coming in. He's come to take away the comfortableness, the security. He's He's coming to take what's ours. Listen, Jesus isn't coming to take what's ours. He's coming to reclaim what's his. It's all his. He's the only rightful king of Jerusalem, and he's the only rightful king of you and me. He's the only rightful king in the world. And we have this fear that he's going to come in and he's going to make life tough and you know, he's going to ask me to do things, he's going to ask me not to do things, I'm going to have to sacrifice, it's going to be difficult. Uh, I don't know if I'm always going to like it. Listen, Jesus is a better king than you. And because he's a better king, he gives a better life. Jesus is a better king and he gives a better life. Now, let's go back into this scene just for a moment. Just imagine with me, the Magi, they show up, Okay, they're having this conversation with Herod. They're loaded down with these extravagant gifts. They come, he sees the treasure chest, whatever else, and they say to Herod, Herod, we've come to worship the one born king. You're not him. We can imagine how he's feeling. And so what does he do? He calls the chief priests. He calls the religious leaders. He calls them in. And basically, hey, do you know what these guys are talking about? I mean, where is the one who's going to be born king? Because there's now a fight for the throne, there's a threat to the throne. And you would almost expect them to say, Well, I mean, we have no idea. Hey, we don't know where he is. You know the amazing thing is they know where he is. They they know. They know the prophecies. They know they know the Old Testament stuff. And they quote Micah 5 2 to Herod. They know that he's to be born in Bethlehem. They're not surprised. Some people look at this and say, well, you know, Herod's upset and all Jerusalem's upset. Well, Jerusalem's upset because Herod's upset. If he's crazy and he's upset, then everybody's upset. Yeah, I mean, maybe. But I think it's more than that, you see. Because they know where Jesus is to be born. It's only six miles away. But they can't trouble themselves to get off their throne and make a six-mile journey. Because they like the power and the authority that they have. They like the way things are going. They quote Micah 5, 2 to Herod. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, though you are small, one from you will come forth. And who is to be the ruler of the king of Israel. That's not the whole verse, you know. Micah 5, 2, it keeps on going, and it says this. Whose coming forth is from old. Yes, from ancient days. You see, the promise is of a pre-existent king, a pre-existent Messiah king, a king whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. The religious leaders knew the promise; they they, they knew the whole verse, they knew everything, they knew the prophecy that this king, he found his roots in eternity past. He would be, as John would write in his gospel, the Word made flesh, the ever present second person of the Trinity, that he would rise up and he would limit himself by taking on flesh and bone. He would become man. They know this, they know the prophecy. They quoted to Herod, but they can't trouble themselves to go six miles to see Jesus. When the wise men, these distant Persian magi, will travel over 900 miles in a caravan, most likely, to come see him. And they bring gifts, gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and as we talked about earlier, gifts fit for a king. Gifts foreshadowing a sacrifice, foreshadowing death that we now understand maybe the magi didn't at the time. But it speaks to us. We can see that. What we often don't see, though, is ourselves as Jerusalem, is ourselves as Herod, because we want to think we're the Magi. Listen, the religious leaders, they knew the scriptures, they knew the promises. They didn't do anything about it. You and I, sometimes we know the scriptures, we know the commands hey, go make disciples. When there's a conflict, don't don't talk about the person behind their back. Just go right to them, have a conversation. We know the commands. You're the light of the world. But sometimes we shrink back. We know, but we don't always do. Why? Because we're comfortable on our throne too. See, we want to be the wise men. But sometimes we can be a whole lot more like Jerusalem. You know what's interesting? Those who are most likely to invite other people to a worship gathering are those who just most recently started going to worship gatherings. Those who are most likely to share Jesus with other people are those who most recently met Jesus. That there's something about life that, you know, as we just go through life, that maybe the joy fades a little bit. Because the invites seem to lessen. They seem to cease a little bit. There's something about the joy right in the moment that gets us excited. But maybe it goes away after a while. You know, one of the things of the Christmas season that it kind of helps us do a little bit is just to recapture the wonder of it all when we focus rightly on who Jesus is. The Magi come from far away. They make a distant journey to come see this king, this one who is born king of Israel. They meet Herod, they follow the star, and they end up at the house where the child is with his mother Mary. And it's that verse, you know, that tells us that our nativity scene is all messed up, right? Because they don't show up at the manger with the shepherds, okay? It's at least a year later, Jesus is a toddler now, they're at a house, Okay, so you got to go home, I'm telling you, this afternoon, and you got to go into your family room where your nativity scene is, and you got to take the wise men, and you need to move them to the kitchen, all right? <laughs> and then you got to go to the store, and you got to buy about 20 more figurines, okay? So there can be a whole caravan. And let me tell you, when people come to your home, it's going to be a great conversation starter, you are going to be like, what in the world is going on? You're going to be able to tell them how Christmas really happened, Okay? But that's, the, but that's how it is, and so we read this. We know, okay, our nativity scene is messed up a little bit. And then we read it afresh, and we see it, and it come to life. And, but it's discoveries like that, you know, that open your eyes, and, and the Scripture comes alive, and it makes you just excited because you're learning, and you're seeing it. And when you see it for yourself, what happens in the Scriptures? There's joy, right? There is this excitement. And there is this sense, I want to go tell, I want to share. Did you know that the Magi weren't there with the shepherds? I mean, there's excitement about that. One of the things that we have to do is recapture the wonder, the excitement of Jesus and who he is and what he's done. Here's one of the most wonderful truths of Scripture, that Jesus came for the distant. He came for the distant. Maybe you feel distant this morning, and you know, hey, by practice, by custom, by your life, say, I'm, I'm distant from God. I've done things that I never dreamed I'd do. I've said things that if I could take back, I would. I've thought things. I don't even know how that stuff entered my mind. And it just leaves you with, with this, feeling. F- I just feel so distant so far from God. And at least the wise men, you know, how they had these great gifts that they could bring. And you say, I don't feel like I have anything of value. I don't think I have anything of value that I could bring to Jesus. Listen, Jesus came for the distant, just like he came for the dirty. See, because of sin, we're all stained. We're all dirty, every last one of us. But you know what? Because of sin, we're all distant as well. And you know this, because sin always causes distance, right? It's not like somebody sins against you, and then you're like, oh man, I feel like we're closer than ever after you did that. That was really good. I don't know. When someone sins against you, what happens? It creates distance. It's like, I just need a moment before we talk here, okay? Right? You've offended me. You've done this thing, and it bothers me. Sin always creates distance. And because we've sinned, there is this distance that we've put between ourselves and God. And here's the thing, there's nothing that we can do to eliminate the distance because he's perfect, he's holy. And so in order to eliminate the distance, Jesus took on flesh and bone. He limited himself. He eliminated the distance. He came from heaven so that we could come close. And he took on our sin and our shame And he died on a cross for it. And he rose again so that he could exchange all of the junk that we gave to him with his righteousness. So that we could be rightly adopted into the family of God and that he could call us his children. See, he's eliminated the distance. It doesn't matter how far off you feel. And you know what? The treasure, the gift that he really treasures most is your heart. That's so the Bible says, hey, the sacrifices that I'm after are a broken and contrite heart. That's what I want. I want your mind's attention, and I want your heart's affection. The first readers of Matthew's gospel, as they come to Matthew 2, these Jewish people, and they, they hear it being read to them, they were probably thinking, what can Gentile wise men teach us? All these years later, we come to Matthew 2 and we think, hey, we're a lot like those wise men. You know what? We both might be wrong. Because what the wise men could teach those Jewish people is that Jesus is the right and only king of the universe. He's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. And what Matthew 2 can teach us is, in the busyness and the hecticness, of the season, sometimes we could miss what's most important. Sometimes we can know the scripture and we cannot obey them. Sometimes we can be more like Jerusalem than we are the wise men. And so what do we need to do? Recapture the wonder of it all because Jesus came for the distant. He came for all of us who are far off because he came for all people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you're a good God, that you would send your one and only Son who's perfect in every way to this earth, that we had stained with our sin and that he would be limited by flesh and bone and that he would take our sin upon himself on the cross. But God, he would raise again so that we could be given his righteousness. And so for all of us who feel distant, who feel far off, you invite us to come close, because your Son has eliminated the distance. And now we get to go and tell this good news of great joy that is for all people. So God, help us to tell it well. We need your help to do that, so we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.